Hello and welcome once again to The Front Lines of Freedom, brought to you by the Renew Democracy Initiative. This is a podcast where we journey into the stories of freedom fighters, democracy seekers, and advocates for the freedom of oppressed people everywhere. We hear about what they did, how they did it, and why they did it. My name is Ivan Mawadide, and I'm a democracy activist from Zimbabwe, where I started a citizens' movement and was jailed, tortured, and eventually escaped Zimbabwe for it. Today, we talk with Joey Siu, a young democracy activist from Hong Kong who is also a U.S. citizen and is now exiled in the U.S. In 2019, whilst in college in Hong Kong, Joey found herself at the forefront of organizing protests against the government's move to introduce a law that would extradite those it deemed as criminals to be tried on China's mainland. Her story is inspiring. It's also heartbreaking, but there's a lot to learn from it about how you and I can stay the distance for the things that we believe the most in. Let's listen in. Joey Siu, thank you so much for joining me here today and welcome to the Front Lines of Freedom. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to share my stories and also the story of Hong Kong with all of you guys. Let me start by just noting how young you are, first of all, and how impressive that is in terms of the things that you have gotten involved in and the things that you have become an advocate for in Hong Kong and globally. Tell me a little bit about how did you get to a point of becoming involved in advocating for democracy in Hong Kong? Where does Joey's story start? Sure. So a little bit about myself. Actually, since the first year that I began my college life at the City University of Hong Kong, I have been very active in terms of participating in student-organized campaigns and also events on campus. I was elected the president of the executive committee of my majors, of my major student union. And then later on in 2019, I was elected by our student council to be the external vice president of our student union, which represents all of the students at the city. University of Hong Kong. And then very soon after I was appointed the external vice president, Hong Kong's pro-democracy movement broke out in 2019. So very naturally, I just turned from organizing events and also initiatives on campus to starting to organize protests, demonstrations, and rallies on the streets for not just students at my university, but then for all of the Hong Kongers who are fighting or hoping to participate to defend our freedom and democracy. So that is a very brief introduction of how my activism started. Mm. I must note something that I have realized in many of the Hong Kong democracy activists that I've spoken to is how young they are. And I have to ask again, is this something that's built into young people in Hong Kong? Or is it something that you learn about when you get to college? Because again, I realize how large the student activism cohort is, you know, in Hong Kong. So I think before 2019, even though I would say I don't feel like Hong Kongers ever enjoyed a full level of democracy, but then before 2019, our information was still relatively accessible in Hong Kong. 
you have access to different medias, no matter that is like paper, no matter that is news on social media platforms. You can access all this information across different websites from both Western medias, independent medias, or even state medias that are run by the Chinese Muslim Party. So it's just very naturally growing up in Hong Kong, you would be surrounded by all of these information, all these news, where very naturally you just became very aware of different things happening in Hong Kong, including social issues and political issues. But then, of course, when you started your life in college or universities, you very naturally get exposed to more of these kind of political engagements and also information because for a very long time, students in Hong Kong are a very huge part, is a very important component of our social movements. So, for example, in 2014, for the Umbrella Revolution, you saw student leaders like my friends Alex Chow, Nathan Law, and Joshua Wang, who are also university students at that time, representing their old student bodies, leading their schoolmates and their classmates, fighting on the streets, demanding freedom and democracy. And then Going back to 2019, you see me, myself, alongside other student activists from different universities and colleges stepping up, trying to contribute however we can to the social movement. Mm. And it is very common that you would see student leaders and activists and also student bodies are a very huge part when it comes to dialogues on social right. issues and political issues. And very naturally, you see a lot of even our pro-democracy figures elected to our legislative council, including my friend Nathan, who were also a student leader before. They would very naturally just start their activist or their political career in college, mm-hmm. university, and then continuing that journey by running for elections, right. standing for different campaigns, etc. So would you say that events like the Umbrella Revolution of 2014, did that have an impact on your perspective or your decision to get involved in 2019? I mean, you were in middle school when the Umbrella Revolution broke out. Yeah, I think definitely because to a lot of people in Hong Kong or even people across the globe, that was a really unprecedented and also historical event. I mean, seeing so many people putting their careers, putting the things that they cherish or they have at risk, taking all to the streets in central Hong Kong Mm. and then occupying the streets, asking for a universal suffrage where we can really elect our leaders of the city using a one-person, one-vote mechanism. I think that was a very shocking, very, very inspiring moment for me myself as a very young student at that time. And looking back at that time, So my family was supportive of me participating in the movement. They were trying to ask me not to participate, one, because of their difference in political views, but then also because that they are very worried about my Mm. safety, etc. But then for me, myself, seeing on the news, seeing people like Joshua, Nathan, and then others who are similar to my age, seeing elementary school kids wearing school uniforms and standing in solidarity on the streets with the other adults or elderly in Hong Kong. I think that was really, really inspiring. And that led me to thinking about, for me, myself, as a young person in Hong Kong, 
what can I do for the society's future? What can I do for Hong Kong's future? How can I contribute when I grow up, when I enter college and become, and then become the same age as Joshua and Nathan? Mm. When I become their age, what kind of roles that I want to be taking up so that I can also contribute to, to paving a better future for Hong Kong. So that definitely was a very huge inspiration to me. And it also, in some sense, encouraged my activism later mm. on in 2019. I have to say that that is very inspiring hearing you talk about what drove your decision to get involved, especially at a young age. And as a U.S. citizen, because you're both a Hong Kong citizen and a U.S. citizen, when you look at your peers in the U.S., do you sense the same level of understanding of political issues or democracy issues as you do uh, you know, when you look around at your peers? Well, I would say for me myself back then in Hong Kong, although I have always been hoping to become a person who would be able to contribute to the future of Hong Kong, but then I never really thought about becoming like a more public-facing activist who would be taking up the role of like organizing mm. demonstrations or other kinds of activities. I never thought about being like put under the spotlight or in front of the public eye, but then really when the movement broke out, you just understand that that is your responsibility, that mm. is your opportunity obligation, you have to do something. So without much hesitation or thought, I just started taking actions, organizing wow. things, and then participating. Mm -hmm. I mean, at that time, I kind of understood that there is going to be risk that comes with becoming a public-facing activist. But then seeing so many people marching on the streets in Hong Kong, seeing so many people self-organizing, contributing however they can to stand up for the values that we believe in. I really did not think too much about that and just naturally started doing that. And I believe a lot of people in Hong Kong at that time also thought the same as me. They did not really think about their own careers, the future, their schoolwork and everything else. You just thought that it is also their responsibility to mm -hmm. do something for for Hong Kong. And I thought that was really something that is really inspiring about our movement in, in 2019 because so many people from so many different backgrounds, we see school kids, adults from the finance sector, from the legal sector, we see elderly who are really in white hair who have to hold hands with each other to continue to participate in the mm. protest, to march on. You see all of these people giving up almost everything that they have to take on to the streets. And I think when you are at that moment, when you see that, you just wouldn't think about yourself. And then mm. you would just think about what can I do to stand in solidarity with them? Right. What can I do to be a part of this movement to to fight for a place that we love so much. And then going back to your question about what do I think of my peers in the United States, I think I think a lot of us in the United States here, we often really take our freedom and also what we have for granted. Because for too long we have always been seeing America as this bacon of democracy. Mm. We always thought that it has always been here. Our freedom has always been here. Democracy has always been in the United States. And that 
we don't need to do much to protect it, to reflect upon what does it really mean to us. But then seeing what has happened in 2020 with the election, seeing what has happened with the January 6th attack, and also a lot of things happening nowadays in the United States, I think a lot of people are starting to realize that while democracy and freedom are really fragile, we cannot take it for granted because if you do so, it's going to disappear because you see how aggressive these dictators have been in terms of Mm. not just oppressing people within their regions, but then they are really actively exporting their values of authoritarianism, Mm. exporting their values of disrespect to freedom and democracy worldwide. And that is going to be encroaching our values very, very quickly. And if we don't actively reflect upon these values, if we don't actively take actions to defend these values, it's going to be gone very, very soon without us even realizing, perhaps. Mm. So I really hope that our peers in the United States and also in other democratic countries would really look at what has been happening in Hong Kong, in Tibet, East Turkestan, or so many other countries that are ongoing revolutions and movements to understand that these values do not come at no price. You have Mm. to defend it. You have to do something about it so it will not be encroached by authoritarianism. Mm. And that is such a pointed answer that I think deserves many people from all generations to rally around that the freedoms that people enjoy in free societies are not guaranteed unless people become a part of defending those freedoms just as you have. I want to edge closer to talking about the protests in 2019, but just before we do that, Joey, I want to maybe ask you to give us a very quick understanding of what led to the 2014 Umbrella Revolution. And then we're going to segue into talking about what led to the 2019 protests and, of course, the pro-democracy movement that has come out of that. Just walk us through what gave birth to the Umbrella Revolution for those of our listeners who don't know about it. Sure. So back in 2014, so for very, very long, the Chinese authorities and the Hong Kong authorities have been promising Hong Kongers authentic universal suffrage where we really would get a vote per person to elect the leaders of our cities. But then that promise never came true. All the authorities have been doing is to give us false hopes, is to uh, force us into compromising that the promise that they have made to the people of Hong Kong. So that really ignited the Umbrella Revolution in 2014, where at the very beginning, we were fighting for an authentic universal suffrage and everything that comes with that. But then by the end, I feel like a lot of people are really fighting for a true level of democracy and, a, and then freedom in Hong Kong because we were never given that in mm. back in 2014 and even before that. And then talking about 2019, so before the movement broke out, the Hong Kong authorities and also the Chinese authorities had proposed an extradition agreement where it would allow the Chinese authorities and the Hong Kong authorities to collaborate and then to extradite any criminals in Hong Kong back to mainland China to undergo their judicial system, which we all know that is very corrupted, 
not transparent and also would be a very direct and also dangerous threat to the independent judicial mm-hmm. system in Hong Kong because if the legislation was ever passed, then the Chinese authority basically have the authority to ask for any criminals in Hong Kong to be extradited to China. So at the very beginning, protesters took onto the streets in protest against that specific legislation. But then with the police brutality starting to go on in Hong Kong, with the government's irresponsiveness to the people's demands, etc., it very soon became really a fight for uh, freedom and democracy in Hong Kong. We started asking for our five demands, which includes an investigation into police brutality, mm-hmm. which includes the suspension of the extradition agreement, which includes a authentic universal suffrage, which we have been asking so long for. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that would be a very brief introduction to what really started the Umbrella right. Revolution and our movement in 2009. So now the movement in 2019, you get involved, you're a student leader, and you start to organize. Tell me what you were doing as you were organizing. What exactly did you guys do to put together the protests that became very loud globally? So at the very beginning, I myself started with organizing political gatherings and also events on campus where we talk to students about what does the extradition agreement means to Hong Kong? How -hmm. would it destroy the judicial system and other core values of Hong Kong and to mobilize students to participate in the protests and demonstrations happening all across different regions in Hong Kong. And then I also participated in the organization of different rallies and demonstrations in different districts in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. But then I really have to say that for our movement in 2019, it was really a leaderless movement because Mm. with our experience back in 2014 during the Umbrella Revolution, we realized that actually Hong Kongers are very, very capable of self-organizing. We're capable and experienced in terms of organizing different rallies, demonstrations. We are creative enough to think of other ways to continuously promote our movement inside of Hong Kong and outside of Hong Kong, including some of the art and culture exhibitions put on by different Hong Kongers to promote our five demands, to promote the values of freedom and democracy inside of Hong Kong. So with that being said, when the movement is so leaderless, me, myself, and alongside other student activists realized that we do not have to be the leaders of the movement. We do not need to be leading everyone because Hong Kongers are so capable of guiding ourselves. We're so capable of working without a leader, just collaborating among ourselves to make the movement successful. So very soon we realized that we do not have to take on a leadership role in terms of organizing right. on-the-ground protests and rallies. So we started thinking, what else can we do for Hong Kong? And mm. we spoke to a professor who was also dedicated to the movement at that time. And then he suggested that. So for now, the international community knows that there is a protest in Hong Kong. They know what has been going on on the ground. But then what they do not know is how can they help Hong Kong? And then he told us that, well, I feel like you guys are students who have a very special perspective because First of all, a lot of your friends are also participants of this revolution. Secondly, Mm -hmm. a lot of them are also arrested or that they are currently on the streets. You can tell their stories. You can tell your stories to really 
bring a very humane perspective to the international community and encourage them to take actions to defend these protesters who are currently protesting on the streets. Mm -hmm. And then also with your perspective as a student, you would be able to share your thoughts in terms of what the international community can do for Hong Kong because this is your generation's future. So we started this student coalition which focused on international advocacy for Hong Kong and Mm -hmm. we started mobilizing legislators across the globe to push for legislations that would help defend Hong Kong's democratic freedoms. Right, right. You know, the concept of a leaderless movement is something that is not foreign to me because it's part of what we did in Zimbabwe when we launched the citizens' movement and it started in my small church office. One of the decisions we then made early on was that it would be leaderless and we tried our best to do that. I'm curious to know what you feel the success of a leaderless movement has been from 2019 when you started and whether that's a concept that more and more movements and kind of people power movements should be adopting. I believe so because when we say this is a leaderless movement, but then in reality is that that makes everyone a leader because when this is a leaderless movement, everyone would share the responsibility of leading different activities, different protests, and you would be able to equip every participant of your movement with the skills of organizing Mm -hmm. and managing a campaign. And that would make your movement really, really powerful because maybe in the past with a leader, you only have one to two people that are capable of doing this. But then with a leaderless movement, you would have a hundred, you would have a thousand people who are capable of self-organizing. Even Mm. when the first one is taken down by the authorities, even when maybe the 10 of them are arrested by the authorities under different crimes, you still have 90 of them. You still have so many others who would be able to fill that position, to fill the gap and then to continue organizing. So I definitely think this is really, really powerful. And also... I believe that you have so much more experience than me with your organizing and your experience in Zimbabwe. And we can also share the fact that with such a leaderless movement, you will see everyone being so devoted, being so capable of organizing through so many different and creative ways. And I Mm. think this makes our movement really, really strong and powerful because on one hand, we have so many more capable people who would be able to contribute. And on the other hand, that makes the authority really difficult in terms of hunting down the leaders because there is none. And then all of us are. You can only stop our movement if you arrest all of us. All of of us, yeah. And which is impossible. (laughs) So I definitely think this is a really powerful way of continuing our activism and also movement. And I would really encourage our friends from different communities to try this out because when we're doing this, we have so many leaders that would be able to Mm. uh, continue leading our, our fight in so many different ways. Joey, I'm curious to know, and really, this is just really out of out of wanting our listeners to know some of the actions you either did or that you saw people in the leaderless movement doing. Would you be able to tell us just a little bit about some of those creative actions that you saw happen on the ground or that you inspired on the ground? Yeah, so we have been seeing a lot of different kinds of your creative protestings. So, for example, back in 2019, we saw... Hong Kongers and also students from different universities and different districts, they are forming this very, very long human chain 
where they hold hands. And then you will see a hundred, a thousand of Hong Kongers standing together, lining up, holding each other's hands while holding these posters and banners asking for the international community to continue Mm. to pay attention to what has been going on in Hong Kong. They did this across the 18 districts in Hong Kong. They did this among different universities. Wow. And then we also saw school kids from elementary school, from middle school, doing this before they go back to school for a lesson. That is they amazing. Did that. that was such a powerful, powerful picture because you literally see people standing in solidarity in school uniforms and then so many different people and from so many different backgrounds really standing together. And that was a really powerful image that really shocked the international community. And then you also saw people taking different neon light posters and banners going up on top of the Lion Rock in Hong Kong, which is a very significant landmark of our city. Mm-hmm. And then they took these uh, shining banners on top of the Lion Rock campaigning, asking for the international community's attention. And all of these are such creative ways in terms of sustaining our movement because at that time, you saw that every time when we have a demonstration or rally, you would saw police in Hong Kong very brutally cracking down on us, dispersing the crowd, making arrests against different protesters, beating up different journalists and then even bystanders. And at mm. that time, we were really... We were really facing a huge challenge because we do not know how we can continue protesting, getting the message out of Hong Kong without continuously having our own people getting arrested. So when the idea of human chain, forming human chain started in Hong Kong, when the idea of taking our banners up to the top of the Lion Rock Mm -hmm. came up, when we put that into action, that was such a powerful image. You know, I get goosebumps listening to these actions that people did, school children in their uniforms and forming a human chain and going up onto this rock. The one thing I know that then definitely happens is what you've just alluded to, which is the response of the government. And in repressive regimes, it's not a diplomatic dispersion or engagement. It's very harsh. It's violent. People get hurt. Sometimes people get killed. People get arrested. And I imagine this is what happened with your protests, is that the authorities came down heavily on that. Walk us through some of those responses. Definitely. So we have very briefly talked about the 2014 Umbrella Revolution. So at that time, the police did fire several rounds of tear gas to disperse the crowd. And at that time, we were really shocked because that was, to us at that time, was pretty violent. We never imagined that the police would be firing tear gas against peaceful protesters who were simply occupying the streets without acting brutally or violently or even showing that kind of intention. But then in 2019, what we saw is such an aggressive, such an excessive level of use of violence and force and also such a frequent use of different kinds of weapons, including tear gas, rubber bullets, etc. Mm-hmm. They would be firing 
hundreds of rounds of tear gas and rubber bullets against a bunch of peaceful protesters who were simply marching on the streets without any weapons in hand or without even displaying any intentions of attacking the police or disobeying them. And you will see that happen in Hong Kong every single day in different districts for a few months. And that was just shocking. And when it comes to around November in 2019 in Hong Kong, you might have heard about this before. But then what the police did was that they surrounded two of the universities in Hong Kong. Mm. And what they did is that they trapped all these protesters inside of this university campuses. Oh, my gosh. And they fired thousands of rounds of tear gas, rubber bullets inside of these university campuses against protesters who are mainly students. And you see that happening in Hong Kong for consecutively a few months. And every day you hear not just people getting arrested, getting beaten up by the police with batons or sprayed with pepper spray. But then really you are hearing people getting shot by tear gas canisters, by rubber bullets in Hong Kong, causing very, very serious injuries. And Mm. that was just unimaginably painful. Now, coming out of that situation, there were many arrests, the persecution began, and many of the young protesters and those that either led or that organized had to leave Hong Kong. And so many are in different parts of the world. You are in the U.S. now. Tell me about the work that you are all doing, because it seems to me that you have not stopped advocating for the freedom of Hong Kong. Yeah, a lot of us even though we have gone into exile, we have relocated to another country because of persecution, etc. We still have not stopped for a minute since we have left Hong Kong. We are still campaigning so hard for Hong Kong on the international front. We have been continuously telling the stories of ourselves and of other Hong Kongers. We're advocating for different democratic countries to provide, for example, humanitarian channels for Hong Kongers who have been politically exposed to be able to relocate to a rather safe and democratic country where they can continue to advocate for our city's democratic freedoms. We Mm -hmm. have been asking the international community to hold Chinese authorities and Hong Kong authorities accountable for the human rights abuses that they have committed for the destruction of our universal fundamental rights that they have violated. And we have also been trying to uh, use our stories of Hong Kong, to use our stories of our own, to educate people all across the globe to no longer turn a blind eye on the Chinese Communist Party's atrocities committed in Hong Kong and also elsewhere. Mm -hmm. We think it's really important that we continue to spread the message, that we continue to tell our stories so that what happened in Hong Kong will not happen again in other regions of the world because, as I have mentioned before, what the Chinese Communist Party and other dictators have been doing is that they are not just oppressing people within their own regions under Mm. their control. They're actively trying to spread the idea of authoritarianism across every corner of the globe. They're trying to destroy the international world order where Mm. there will no longer be a respect for human rights and fundamental values. So we have been trying very hard to bring Hong Kong's story out and make that heard. Right, right. I see. And I know that you've been working, as you said, with others. Would you just walk us through some of the 
communities of oppressed people by the Chinese regime that you are standing in solidarity with in the different diplomatic circles? Sure. So we have been trying very, very hard and have uh, given a lot of effort into building different coalitions and also to establish solidarity between different communities who are also undergoing oppressions of the Chinese party. So we have been working very, very closely with the Uyghur community, the Tibetan community, Taiwanese communities, and then also Chinese dissidents in exile, because we understand that a lot of times if we work on our own, we might not be powerful enough, we might not be loud enough to be heard. But then when we stand in solidarity, when we act in solidarity with so many different communities, we will be strong enough, we will be powerful enough to not mm. just to be heard, but then also to push for concrete actions from the international community to react to what the Chinese Party has been doing in our homelands. So that was what we have been doing. And just to add on to that, I think one of the very, very remarkable campaign that we have worked on is the No Beijing 2022 campaign, which is co-organized by so many different communities that are also under the CCP's oppression, where we have been organizing really countless of protests and demonstrations, not just against the Chinese embassies, but then also against enterprises and other stakeholders that are complicit in covering up, that are complicit in whitewashing the CCP's human rights atrocities in our region. And that created a really, really powerful impact where we successfully got more than 10 countries, including the United States, the UK and Canada, to commit to a diplomatic boycott where none of their diplomats or their country leaders showed up at the Beijing Olympics. So I think that was a really successful story. Well, I have to take my hat off to you and your colleagues for the tenacity, the vision, and really you know, the hope that you have for freedom, you, you have committed yourselves in some amazing ways. And I think you've seen some great results for it. As a final question before we let you go, Joey, your hope for Hong Kong, what do you see possible? What do you want to see? What do you lie awake at night thinking would happen for Hong Kong? I mean, to be very honest, I think the situation in Hong Kong will only go worse. But then what really kept me going and kept a lot of other friends of mine going is that we understand that this is going to be a very long and also tough journey. It's never going to be easy to fight against such a powerful dictator, which is the second largest economy in the world with so much resources and influence. But then for me, myself, every time i depressed, disappointed, or feeling discouraged, I would think about my friends who are in prison right now. I have this very close friend of mine whose name is Owen Chow. He participated in the pro-democracy democratic primaries in Hong Kong in 2020. Mm. And in January 2021, he was arrested alongside other candidates who also stood for the election. For Owen and a lot of people arrested that time, a lot of them are my friends. And all they wanted for Hong Kong is really to sacrifice what they have, to contribute what they have, to fight for a democratic, a free Hong Kong. And every time I feel discouraged or every time I think about giving up, 
I would think about these people who are currently sitting in jail, who paid the price of fighting for Hong Kong. I mean, this is going to be a very, very long journey. I may never see them ever again in my life because they might get sentenced for lifetime for standing for standing in an election. But then I believe that all of us understand that. But then what really kept us going is that because this is a long journey, this is a long fight. So it is even more important that we have mm. to start fighting it right now because mm. if we don't do that, our next generations will suffer from this too. They will also become people who are living in exile, in diaspora, who will never be able to go back to Hong Kong, who would never be able to even step on the soil of their homeland. Mm. And we do not want that. We want this to end at our generation. We want to end this fight at our generations. So mm. our next generations would not have to suffer. They can go back to Hong Kong freely. They can grow up in a Hong Kong that is democratic, that is free. And I think that was really the reason that kept all of us going. Mm. Joey, I could not think of a more thought-provoking moment to end our conversation. You said something so powerful that this is a, a long fight. It's a long journey. And I want to join my voice to yours, to Hong Kongers, to freedom seekers across the world that dream with you of what you have spoken about, but also know that it is very possible and that it is very real and that you have our support and that you have our admiration. Thank you so much for joining me, Joey Sue. Thank you so much for having me. If you have been listening to us talk today, you will hear a common thread. And it's a thread of understanding that these journeys, these fights, these desires, these missions that we go on are not things that we believe can happen in the snap of a finger. But they're things that we understand will take the duration of our lifetime and in sometimes may even take our lives. You heard Joey talk about some of her friends that she misses who are in prison, people that she does not know whether she will ever see again. I want to take a moment to encourage you, as we always do on this podcast, that for whatever cause, whatever mission that you have committed yourself to, as long as it is positive, as long as it is good, as long as it is fighting to improve the lives of the weakest and those who are most oppressed, we want you to know that although the journey will be long and tiresome and arduous, there is a moment where it happens, where things work out as long as you stay the course. Just like Joey, and her colleagues have stayed the distance. My name is Ivan Mawarire. This has been the Frontlines of Freedom podcast. Thank you so much for joining me and we will see you again next time. Bye-bye.